My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, and we are going to be heading in today to Genesis 17 and 18. But before that, I do have a bit of an announcement. We are going to have our first ever guest on the show uh, next week, uh, I will be with Karai Rowe, he of Foreign Saints, a very good friend of mine uh, from church back home in North Carolina. Uh, it's just a tremendous opportunity to talk with him about uh, Genesis 19 uh, that he has, uh, as I've mentioned previously, covered on his own podcast. So send some love their way at Foreign Saints. He and Meredith, they do a great job over there. Love them both immensely. But as far as we are concerned, uh, we're going to be heading in, like I said, to chapter 17 and 18, starting with verses 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years, oh, years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. Oh, no. Go, Paige. Please, Paige. <laughs> Sorry, got tripped up there with my microphone uh, and the page turner. So there we go. That's fun. Between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought, oh, excuse me, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. A lot to unpack here in these 14 verses. Now, it has been about, uh, as far as the text is concerned, I believe about 13 years have passed since Abram last heard, at least once he said in the biblical narrative, from God and when God reappears. And when God does that, it isn't to foretell of Abram's child's birth initially, but instead to establish a ritual that furthers a different goal, one that is meant to set Abram and his male descendants apart from others through circumcision. This is not what Abram was promised initially, but it becomes a priority for God for Abram to engage in. Abram, despite wanting the other promise, submits to God 
and engages in a ceremonial pra- uh, ceremonial practice for the purposes of honoring and loving God. Can you think about that for a second? What has God been promising this whole time? And suddenly, out of the blue, maybe there have been meetings before this that are just not recorded in Scripture. We don't know because they're not recorded. <laughs> but instead of, hey, the, the child's on its way, everything's good, God starts the conversation with more rules, with more regulations. And I know we're all happy about that, but this is part of several tests that are happening right now for Abram, now named Abraham. And Abraham submits to God, despite knowing the impossibilities of it all, despite having been given one more thing he has to do, he submits. And we should learn from that. God isn't all about rules and regulations, but rules and regulations exist in our walk with Christ. So that's something we need to look forward to. That's something we need to uphold. And that's something we need to tell the world, hey, it's not bad that there are things I can and cannot do because they are meant for our good. And this is, for this time in history, meant for their good. Let's look at real quick. We have a, a drastic change here. Abram is no longer Abram. He is Abraham. We see that God has the power to rename someone and he has the power to offer them power beyond what they used to be as a result. Abram originally uh, means exalted father, while Abraham means father of a multitude. We see that word is brought up multiple times over in God's description of what is happening here. And to further that point, God calls him Abraham. Both of these are excellent names, but one of these names furthers the promise made by God to Abraham about his words coming true. And if God doesn't uphold his end of the bargain, then he has proven himself unworthy of worship and devotion, and no one within Abraham's retinue would have continued following him. They would have just remembered this time and say, hey, remember that weird time we all had to do this very specific ritual and it kind of hurt for a bit, <laughs> or really a lot? Well, that was weird. Well, I'm not going to do that to my kid. I'm not going to have anything happen with that in mind uh, because, well, pff, he said this was going to happen. We went through this whole ritual ceremony thing and he got no kid. So why would we ever submit to a God like that? But because of God being who he is, he has been faithful to Abraham this whole time. And Abraham follows through with the command, even when he hasn't received the promise he wants the most yet. And that's one thing for all of his faults and all the times that he doesn't end up in this scenario, Abraham still submits to God because he is an imperfect person. He's going to act like an imperfect person. But when he does good, we praise When he does bad, we rebuke, but also love. And in this moment, he deserves praise and love. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Now, specifically, God's name that he uses for himself here is El Shaddai. Now, this can be translated about two ways primarily. I think there's a couple other smaller ones, but these are typically what you're going to hear from most scholars. One is that he is the all-sufficient one or all-sufficient God. And the other is what has been translated here as the Almighty God. Both serve the same purpose to display the immeasurable and incalculable power and majesty of God. The gods of the lands around Abraham couldn't speak or interact with their followers in the same way as the source of all creation and the one who holds all power. 
only the almighty God could make the promise to make a man 99 years old, have the ability to conceive a child with his likewise elderly wife and give them enough time to raise and enjoy the company of that child. No one else has that power. No one. Only God has that power as the creator of all things, as the all-powerful God, as the almighty God, as the God who is sustained and self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. Nothing empowers God. He doesn't need our worship in order to continue like most gods and other religions. They they need sacrifices. They need people worshiping them. They need them to say their names. Names have such power in that sense. God doesn't need us, but he chose us. And this is the story of what he does as a result of choosing us. Now, on to circumcision itself, a very testy subject these days for many different reasons, some valid. Now, there are major debates today within the world on whether or not this counts as an act of mutilation, uh, this is the action of insane religious, insane religious zealots, or is it an act of submission to God? So before we get there, first we must ask why it was important for Abraham and his male descendants to undergo this ritual. Notice the specificity of male there. There is no female circumcision in the Bible. Does not exist, is not a thing. Don't look for it anywhere. This is male circumcision. The primary reason that Abraham should do this is simply because God said so. There you go, end of debate. Abraham and his descendants are told, do this. He is absolute, and if he says to do something, we do it without question, but he is not without purpose. God doesn't just simply do, say, hey, do this because I say so. There is always a reason whether it be a test of our faith, whether it be um, that, hey, this is actually really good for you. There is always a purpose behind what God does. Now, the act of circumcision is an outward sign of what is supposed to represent a spiritual difference between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. God's people were to be set apart and holy. They were to be vastly different in word and deed to the people around them. No other culture had this ritual for the reasons God specified. The Jewish people were meant to be set apart and different so that God's love could abound through their actions, and circumcision was just an outward sign of these actions. But it never saved them, and it never guaranteed that they would act like the ritual was intended for them to be like. Same thing with baptism. There are some parallels there. Baptism is an outward sign of what should be an inward change in your heart. A baptism doesn't save you. A baptism is not required for you to go to heaven. Look at a thief on the cross. Didn't really cause him to be baptized in that moment. Same thing with circumcision. Circumcision does not save you. If you're circumcised, if you're not as a man, doesn't matter. That's not what saves you. God saves you. You working together with him and realizing who you are and getting down on your knees and saying, I am a sinful man. I am a sinful woman. I repent of what I've done. God saved me from myself. That saves you. Now, for those of you who've been with us since we covered Romans, you'll recall that in Romans 2, 25 through 29, and this is in the NLT, Paul says, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. 
For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Here we see Paul plainly say, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. What matters is your heart. Are you seeking after God's law? Are you seeking after him? Circumcision was never meant for salvation, as Gentiles who never became circumcised will be treated as a true Jew, just as much as a Jew who held to Christ and was circumcised will be counted as God's true child. So is there any reason now for Christians to circumcise their children? Yes and no. It's nothing that has to happen. Paul just said it doesn't need to happen, but he didn't say you shouldn't do it. Like, there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea. Now, recall also in Romans how Paul speaks of matters that don't affect someone else's salvation or theology, but some Christians may value them and others don't. Drinking wine, not drinking alcoholic beverages, you know, watching horror movies, not watching horror movies, listening to rock music, not listening to rock music. Whatever arbitrary thing there is to divide people, it will exist in the church. And God tells us plainly through Scripture, if it doesn't evolve, affect your walk with me, don't worry about it. And don't worry about what your brother is doing too. As long as they're okay with doing it, as long as they're able to use it well, it's okay. Now, circumcision is uh, uh, circumcision is one such issue, much in the way I described those things. Or also how some Christians believe in a literal six-day creation with a seventh day of rest. Others believe in the process of evolution through science. And others believe it might be a mix of the two. And as has been said plenty of times before, like none of these options are inherently wrong with the evidence presented in front of us. Without us being outside observers who somehow got into the time machine and saw how God formed the earth, God formed the heavens, God formed everything. Was it a big bang? The judges say yes, and it appeared. Who knows? Not you and I, because we haven't witnessed it ourselves. That shouldn't affect our salvation. It shouldn't affect how I read this book how I see God working through this book. So it's okay. You know, one day we may find an absolute answer to these questions we ask. Is it okay for men now to be circumcised if they follow Jesus? Is it okay to believe in evolution? Is it okay to say that, hey, I like watching horror movies? But we'll find the answer out one day. But the questions that matter, who Jesus is and what he means to you, that's what matters because that right there affects your salvation. Like, like I said, one day we may find that absolute answer, but that day isn't today. So we must love our brethren regardless of their answer to this conundrum, provided that there is nothing heretical or harmful in it, such as female genital mutilation or beliefs that say the uncircumcised would never enter heaven, as both of those ideas have harmful effects on the body and the soul. That's when we get angry. That's when we say, no, we have an absolute here. We cannot allow this. When scripture says so, when it points out the evil done, nowhere in scripture does it say females have to go through the same thing that males do for this act. Nowhere does it say in scripture that the uncircumcised will never enter heaven. That's when we have an issue. That's when we have a problem. That's when we get defensive. That's when the apologetics come out. So really, it's your own choice. If you want to have your kids circumcised, your, your son circumcised, go for it. If you don't, then don't. Don't be like those losers I might have mentioned this before. It's like the, the men's rights subreddit and oh, what's the other one? Oh, I can't remember the other one. It, it's it's 
men today to crying of how they were mutilated as children and their parents didn't love them. And now they feel like they're less of a man because they were circumcised. It's like, just grow up. You're fine. There are way worse things in the world that could have happened to your body than that. So with that in mind, we'll move on to uh, 15 through 27. And we'll finish out this chapter and move into 18. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you should not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall, shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offering offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, and behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house and or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now, God furthers his renaming scheme by changing Sarai's name to Sarah. Both names mean princess or lady, but in different forms. Technically speaking, Sarai follows the idea of being my princess, you know, in the sense that she is a princess belonging to one house or one family. Sarah, on the other hand, is meant to be a lady or princess of many people. Now, this naming scheme follows the same as Abraham's. So Sarah, despite what is about to happen in the next chapter, is still beloved by God enough to change her name to reflect what she will be and will represent to the world. Now, let's see Abraham's initial reaction to this. In response to God's declaration, Abraham laughs. But this seems to be far different from the laugh Sarah will give later in chapter 18, for which she is reprimanded for doing. Now, instead, this laugh appears to be one made out of recognizing the wholeness of what is about to happen and a human mind just laughing at the ridiculousness of it all, yet accepting it at the same time. Now, uh, to do my due diligence here, there are some commentators who do remark uh, as a counterpoint uh, that there is nothing that suggests that this isn't an incredulous laugh. Uh, but when I look at how God responds to Abraham compared to Sarah, there seems to be a marked difference between the two incidents. So I favor the idea of Abraham laughing out of a mix of excitement, whimsy, and confusion, but will admit that I can't precisely prove that. Now, I did look into the Hebrew for this uh, as much as I understand that lovely language that is beautiful and it's amazing and I'm just dumb. Um, now, in the Hebrew, uh, for there are different words when Abraham laughs and Sarah laughs, but as far as I'm aware from reading it, there are no uh, explicit difference between like and how the character of that laugh is suggested through the Hebrew words used. 
So my studies of that gave me nothing meaningful to add at this point either. If there's a resource out there you know that I just missed when I was researching this, please let me know. That would help actually specify this further. And, you know, specificity is kind of my thing. So if it exists out there, hand it my way. If not, don't worry about it. So uh, that's how I read this. And like I said, there are other people who take it the other way. And I can see arguments for both, but that's how I end up on this part of the spectrum. So where do you win? Let me know. Now, next up, uh, God also steps forth to name Abraham's son, showcasing his power over the family that never would have existed without his intervention. Isaac means he laughs, and his name in reference to this incident is perhaps a gentle prod from God that Abraham would always remember his response to the news that he would still become a father. That this could be taken either way, depending on how Abraham meant to laugh. It was that uh, laughing out of, I don't really get everything that's going on, but sure. Or if it's that laugh of, God, that can't happen. Either way, that name symbolizes what happened to him in this moment. His response to the news was laughter. And he will be reminded of such greater things, of laughing in different ways from having a son that God has named for him. But also note that despite having not been God's intended desire and the intended one to carry on the legacy that God wanted for Abraham, Ishmael still will receive an inheritance and a blessing from God. That is astounding. Back in the day, firstborn children, they got it. At best, the other children, they may have gotten something, but the firstborn child, they're going to get the vast majority of everything, if not everything, from a dad, uh, you know, forgetting the fact that some women couldn't own property back in the day. Your firstborn male son, he was getting everything. Ishmael, in the culture, would have been expected to get everything, but he isn't the hero of the story. But at that same time, God still hasn't forgotten how he came into being, what God did to protect him and to bring him back into Abraham's life, and what could easily happen should the actual desired son be born. It could have been so easy for Sarah to just say, well, I got what I wanted, Hagar and Ishmael, get out of here, and Abraham, give them nothing. That Maybe that happened. Maybe that didn't. I don't think it did. But that's something that might have been a concern to Ishmael and Hagar if Hagar is still around at this point in time. So God promises something because notice Abraham did say that initially when maybe in the midst of confusion, oh, it should be Ishmael that might live before you. But no, God still talks about him in a loving manner. He still looks after him knowing that um, Isaac is going to be the one who actually receives the multitude of God's blessings here. Isaac will receive the true inheritance, but Ishmael was still blessed by God. It was not Ishmael's fault that he wasn't the one God promised to do his will in the world in, and God held no ill will towards him. So regardless of who Ishmael's descendants end up being, as we discussed last episode, recall that God ultimately blessed them to end up becoming mighty. No one achieves power without God being behind it. For good, everything is done in this world, even when it doesn't feel like it at the time. God allows those to rise up who do evil, and he allows those who rise up and do good. Ishmael is a part of that. Isaac is a part of that. Both good and evil come from both, and God is sovereign despite it all. He is the one who gives power. Now, having received the word from God, Abraham immediately followed through with it. Now, sometimes it can be wise to wait and see if you should do things later, but other times we must act instantly when God commands us to work. Sometimes God says, hey, I want you to do this later. 
Sometimes he doesn't give you a time period and he makes you figure it out yourself. Sometimes he says, get up off your butt and do it. This was a get off your butt and do it situation. And Abraham did it. Let's take that example and listen to what God has to say and to then follow through with what we've been commanded to do. And with that, we'll go into Genesis 18 verses 1 through 8. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door and to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of, of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham went, ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds of milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And we see here, God chooses to meet with Abraham in a human-like appearance alongside two angels who will also appear in chapter 19 to speak with Lot. Now, there is some debate on whether or not these angels are a pre-incarnate Christ and an, and an embodied Holy Spirit. You know, since there are three, and you know we do believe in a three-in-one triune God. Now, but without the text specifying further, like I'm not going to speculate more on this. I already ramble on enough as I already do. So I will spare you that for the moment. So we'll just say it's God and two angels for the sake uh, but also bring up there are other people who would say something different because I do want to bring up as off I try and say often other people's viewpoints so that I'm not just giving you what I think I want you to think for yourself so notice here that God doesn't need or require anything that Abraham does for him in this chapter but instead it is used as a way to contrast the righteous and noble actions of his servant Abraham to the sinful and wretched actions of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah that we will get into in more detail in chapter 19. Now, what's the big deal? Well, hospitality was a sacred tradition in the ancient world. Now, it seems a little odd and out of fashion in our current state, but we live in a far different environment than I do in the Fertile Crescent right now and even across the entire world at this point in time. You know, not that we don't have a sense of hospitality, but that the expectations that we have for it are vastly different. Now, they live in a world where many people had to travel over long distances, over months, over years, for the purposes of trade, religion, political unions, and many more. That there was a massive expectation on those who were able to do so, to offer their homes tents and services to these travelers, these foreigners, that not even people within your own country were expected to do the same for foreigners, that there was such a massive expectation on those who were able to do so without seeking financial gain or any exploitation from the travelers from this. They were not, the travelers were not supposed to give them money all the time. They could if they wanted to for their lodgings, but they, there wasn't an expectation all the time. So by fleecing them of their money, by demanding that they do things for you on the field, um, you were being a bad host. And likewise, the guests were expected to not take more than what they needed and to be civil and peaceful within the homes opened up to them. If you were a traveler, you were expected to be gracious to your hosts and the hosts were supposed to be gracious to you. 
if they noticed, hey, oh, you're running out of wine casks or anything like that, or you don't have enough bread for the journey, here, take some from my holds. I'm not going to charge you for it. I want you to be well and good on your own. That is the expectation that has been built up. That would be immensely important for one of the main charges God has against Sodom and Gomorrah in the next chapter. So for someone to violate this sacred tradition was to show that you yourself were worthless and untrustworthy, not only as a host, but as a member of a society. It's kind of a golden rule kind of thing. Treat others as you want to be treated. If you were to go out and travel, you would expect to be treated well. So why would you ever treat a traveler poorly if you wanted the same thing guaranteed to you? That's why the system worked for as long as it did. And that's why people who broke the system were shunned by the community or even killed because no one wanted to be the town where people said, well, I'm just going to pass by them. I'm not safe there. So Abraham here proves himself to be a great host and ally to travelers by going above and beyond the call to make his guests feel welcome and safe, for which he is rewarded. Like, he is not expected to do the things he does in this chapter. He is expected to be, have them fed, to give them shelter, lodging, uh, a place for them to be safe from bandits and anything else that would come across the way. But he doesn't have to give them the best of everything. He doesn't have to give them fine cakes for them to eat. No, he goes above and beyond because he's wanting to love on them. And because he has realized that not only are these travelers, one of them is God. So I believe you know, part of it is he's wanting to go above and beyond for God, but also realize he's doing the same favors, not only for God, but for the people with him. He doesn't know who these people are. Maybe they introduced themselves as angels somewhere along the way, but he's treating them the same way he does God. And that shows his faith and devotion here. And it's one of the reasons why, and later on in this chapter, we're going to see why God treats him as well as he does. Now, we'll go from there to verses 9 through 15. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my husband is old, uh, excuse me, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Sarah's reaction to learning she will be a mother is to laugh. In seeming contrast to her husband, this appears to be a laugh coming from incredulousness and faithlessness. Now, once again, before we judge her too harshly, let us realize where she is at in life. She is nearing triple digits in age, and has gone way past menopause, even assuming that longer-lived women of the time experienced it later than women of today do. Remember how old Abraham will end up being. It goes against rationality and everything that she understands about the world that she could have a child, and she allows this to cloud her judgment, forgetting about all the supernatural things God has done for her and her family already, delivering them from Egypt, delivering Lot from the hands of the uh, kings from Mesopotamia. All those are tremendous things that could never have been done without God's backing. So make no mistake that she is in the wrong here for laughing in, her, in the way she did. 
but also think about where she is before we make light of her situation. And then I would ask you, like I would ask myself to do, to look inward to all the times we have laughed directly at God when he has told us what would happen in our lives. You ever done that? You ever laughed at what God had to say to you? Maybe it wasn't a voice you heard directly. Maybe it was someone in your inner circle or someone at church who said, hey, I think you're meant for this. Or God said to say this to you. And we laughed. It's like, God would never want that for me. God would never want me in ministry, Christian said, laughing as he has a podcast where he preaches the word to people regularly and may end up doing that as his profession along the way. Like, I laughed at that. But also, I was afraid, much like Sarah in this chapter. Like, I didn't want this. This is scary. (laughs) Do you know how scary this is? Like, this is the word of God. You've got to be careful with it. Like, I don't want to ever say anything that causes problems. I don't ever want to say anything that, you know, causes someone to misunderstand scripture or that I didn't do enough research. Or, you know, what if I say the wrong thing to the person that I'm counseling one day? Or what if I say the wrong thing on here? I don't catch it in time and it's out there forever. And then someone misunderstands scripture. Like, I don't want that. But I also want what he wants. And what he said is, do this. Go into seminary. Start this podcast. Start talking to those people that you could not stand to be in a room in before I commanded you to do so and talk about the things that you don't agree with. You know how many times I've had conversations, very fruitful conversations with people that I never would have talked to before now because I was too set in my ways and I'm not going to allow that heresy to be spoken on air? One, a lot. A lot has happened that God has allowed me to be a part of because I said yes. And almost every single time before I had those conversations, I said, I don't know, God, are you sure about this? What what if I say the wrong thing? What if my arguments aren't good enough? Or uh, what if, what if, what if, what if? And God said, look, I love you. Shut up. Do what you're told. So do what you're told. (laughs) As the great sage Chip Ashley would often say, well, will often say, he's still around. Sorry, Dad. (laughs) Do what you're told. Sarah shouldn't have laughed here, but understand where she's coming from. So don't be too harsh on her, but do be harsh. Like there's there's a balance there. Like just I would be just as harsh to myself at you know 16ish years old when I first getting the call to go into ministry. Like for daring to do what God didn't say to do. Hey, I should be harsh on me for doing that, but I should also not condemn me for doing that. There's a difference. There's a fine line. Find that fine line. Now, notice how God has a test of character for Sarah as well here. He knows exactly where she is, yet asks anyways, as he knows she will overhear the conversation, giving her a chance to make up for her disbelief. Instead, she holds fast to her sins and then makes the situation worse by lying. Now, God easily could have punished her for this, But as he had grander designs to play out, he leaves her to wallow in what she's done instead to give her time alone to herself. But he doesn't let her have the final word. He doesn't let that lie linger. He still calls it out when he easily could have been way harsher in his punishment towards her. But sometimes that's all it takes to cut us is for God to say, no, no, you did laugh. No, you did tell me no. No, no, you did that thing you said you wouldn't do. And it's not in a completely and utterly judgmental way of like, oh, well, I guess I'm never going to get anything out of you. It's like, no, it's it's true. You know what you did. No, you did that thing. Whatever it is, insert sin here. And that's his ability. That's what he is capable of doing. That's also what he has granted to us within reason, within love, 
to call out sin, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others, as we covered uh, when we did the Beatitudes in Luke. Now, with that in mind, we're going to go through verses 16 through 33 and then finish out this episode. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. See a lot of things here. God, despite knowing what will happen, still takes the time to speak with Abraham about the eventual fate of Sodom because he values his followers' input and loves him enough to let him be allowed in on the thoughts of the Almighty God. Let's not gloss over that. This is a truly unique and amazing spectacle to behold, even secondhand like we experience it. Very rarely does God reveal his innermost thoughts and designs to us. Abraham is immensely blessed to have this treasured opportunity. God then reveals to his servant that there has been an outcry against the sinful actions and ambitions of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that he himself is verifying the evidence firsthand, an anthropomorphic idea to help Abraham understand that God has done his research before this talk. Now, where did this outcry originate from? Uh, we aren't directly told, as far as I can tell, uh, but in chapter 19, we'll see how to treat a city treats the foreigner in their midst as just one example of their depraved evils. But as far as answering the question goes, God brings up their sins, the angels who go into town will speak against their defense, and perhaps the souls of those who have been harmed by their actions have spoken to God in the midst of their own judgments about the evils of the cities. Regardless, God knows. He has this information. He knows the city is wicked. He knows he's going to destroy both of them. The cities are wicked. He knows he's going to destroy both of them. But he allows this conversation anyways, wanting to see Abraham's response. And how does it, what is Abraham's response? He speaks in the defense for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
noting that by killing the whole town of both cities, then the righteous will be killed among the wicked. Abraham knows how evil these people are. He saw the actions of their kings. He saw the actions of their people. He has lived in a different land and probably heard from Lot about what's happening there, assuming they're in contact. I really hope they are. He knows of their evil. And even though he keeps lowering the number, he's doing it knowing that the lower he brings the number, that means that many people who aren't righteous are going to live. Abraham's heart is in the right place. No heart should ever desire the deaths of others, even the wicked. But that very same heart should also know that God's judgment must be delivered to the world. Sometimes, I mean, just to invoke Godwin's law, you got to stop the Nazis. Sometimes you got to stop child traffickers. Sometimes you got to stop poachers. What's the best effective way that we found out recently? Oh, a bullet to the head. That shouldn't bring us pleasure when a child child trafficker is killed uh, in a shootout with the FBI or the CIA or police or what have you, or when a poacher is killed before he can kill a rhino or an elephant and take their ivory for his own. We shouldn't even take uh, pleasure in the fact that Hitler got rid of himself. And as a result, we know where he ended up. We should take pleasure in the fact that the evil policies of these people and evil actions of these people that were able to use their power and abuse it are no more. That is where we praise God. That is where we find hope and faith and love and trust in. That's what we celebrate when we have something like a VE day or a VJ day. We don't love the fact that that person died. Like there are plenty of people out there, you know, just opening my heart to you that I think the world would be better off just not being here anymore. If they were gone, oh, it would be so much better, better place if Putin wasn't here anymore, if Erdogan wasn't here anymore, Duterte, or, you know, if the Houthis or Houthis, I can't remember how to pronounce the name, or, or ISIS was gone or what have you, Boko Haram. If they were gone from the face of the earth, it'd be so much better because there aren't these terrorist groups out there. There's not a needless war in Ukraine or there's not needless terrorists fighting, uh, uh, trying to destroy ships because they're working as Iranian proxies. Like, uh, it'd be a lot better place if those people weren't there. But that comes at the cost of those people's lives. That's not something we just we just gloss over. We take no pleasure in their demise or when they get their comeuppance on God's timing. Like, you know, everyone loves a good movie. You know, when the villain has been brought up this whole time, we see Emperor Palpatine get thrown by Darth Vader down the shaft and he's gone for good, except the two times he wasn't in Legends and in, God help me, the canon right now, which I do prefer Dark Empire. Not to say that they're great stories, but one is better than the other. But like we do take pleasure. It's like all the evil the emperor has done as a, as a Star Wars media has been built up over the years. All the genocides he led, all the people he had murdered for getting too close to the truth or the Jedi that were murdered on his orders. It's like, man, it feels good to have Emperor Palpatine thrown down that shaft and destroyed with the Death Star too. But if he were a real person, we shouldn't celebrate in that same way. We should hope who should have been in his life to lead him to righteousness? Who should have been there to bring him closer to God? We should also realize that no matter, probably it didn't matter how many people were in his life that said those things. He made his own choices. He defined himself by who he wanted to be. And that person wasn't a person of God. And he ended up getting what he deserved. I don't take pleasure in that fact. And neither should you. Now, schadenfreude at the expense of a soul who has damned themselves to hell shows my heart is not seeking after God. In my opinion, I would say in my opinion for that. 
Now, I'm sure there's probably a philosopher out there somewhere who disagrees with me. I'd be interested in seeing what they would have to say, but I feel kind of strongly about this. And once again, you don't have to feel the same way I do, but kind of get closer to this the more I think about it. It's like, this is not where we should be when it comes to that person's soul. We should rejoice. Let me get this straight. We should rejoice when evil is vanquished. It is a good thing. The Nazis are not in power anymore. It is a good thing that Mao Zedong is dead. It is a good thing that the Aztec civilization is not sacrificing people anymore. It is not good what happened as a result of them dying. Sometimes. And there are plenty of good things that can happen from evil regimes being toppled. It is a good thing that the Germany of today is not the Germany of 1944. Like I said, it's, it's, we should rejoice when evil is vanquished. But we must never forget that the cost of the victory over evil means there are men and women who rejected God and eternally will do so, meaning that the glorious salvation we who know Christ seek after will never be theirs. That should sober us up before we cheer at the deaths of evil men and women. That's why I feel so strongly about this. It's like, if you're like me, you're not a universalist, and you believe that you have your choice here while you're on earth. Maybe you have a second chance after this where Jesus speaks to you directly or God speaks to you, Holy Spirit, what have you, and you still say no. That should bring some sorrow into your mind is that that person had everything offered to them by God and they said no. Just as much as we should feel happy and glorified when someone makes the decision to come to him. But like Abraham, we should ask God for mercy on their behalf. But also like Abraham, we must submit to the rulings God delivers against them as a price for their sins. Just looking at scripture, we get, well, forever from now, we get to Ahab. That is an evil, wicked man. Jezebel, his wife, an evil, wicked woman. They deserved what they got. That does not bring pleasure to my heart that she gets torn apart by dogs, uh, if I remember correctly. And he dies uh, when a stray arrow hits him in battle. It is good that they're no longer around as king and queen because they did terrible, evil, reprehensible things. But if you believe like I do in eternal salvation and the way it works, they're not where they should be if they had just submitted to God. But just remember Abraham, he fought for them. He fought for the majority knowing they weren't righteous because it kept lowering the number. Now, doubtless, one of Abraham's main motivations is that he wanted Lot and his family to be freed from this assault. And this is as good a reason as any to desire mercy for the two cities. Like, if you know, like someone is being in a town that is uh, shelled by Hamas right now, or you know a Palestinian citizen who uh, happened to get in the crossfire and got hit, and you didn't want that to happen to either one of them, like that's a good enough reason for any to want peace in that region. We should want peace in that region, but sometimes we need that personal touch to get us there. And Abraham had that personal touch, and that lot lived in these cities with his family. However, as we will soon find out, they barely qualify as righteous in God's eyes. And honestly, I think the only reason they survive is because they're related to Abraham. Now, I could be, once again, totally off base about this, but I don't see their relationship with God uh, being a, something that they view positively or that they even have at all in Scripture. But there are plenty of you people who say, otherwise, figure it out for yourselves. What do you think? Now, as I mentioned before, Abraham starts his defense by asking for the cities to be spared if 50 people are righteous within them, then 45, then 40 then 30, then 20, and eventually he bargains down to 10. God is immensely patient with his treasured follower and allows him to lower the number multiple times. As Abraham has no doubt realized that there may not even be 10 people righteous enough to spare both cities. There's, there's not one city. He's asking for only 10 people. He's asking for two. 
yet he begs on their behalf anyways. God listens to his chosen's counsel and agrees to go along with the plan, not because he seeks to mock Abraham, as he knows there aren't 10 righteous people there, but because he loves Abraham and he wishes to hear what he says on a subject. This is part of his motivation, he says earlier. See, he wants Abraham to know uh, about to, how to keep the way of the Lord, how to show a righteousness and justice. So with this in mind, God leaves, and we will get what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah next week. And I'm really looking forward to that one. So guys, thank you for listening today. Um, <laughs> I had a, a bit of a burst in uh, listenership last episode, so I don't know if I just need to be sick all the time or if people are just... Uh, throwing it around sharing and saying hey listen to this moron he's sick and he's still making a podcast you know what whatever works or maybe you just just enjoyed it and i'm just being too negative on myself uh, i appreciate what you're doing continue to share continue to send it to other people uh, another way you can help out is just leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice if you're interested in my own fiction writing you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on amazon by searching for the name mc ashley if you're all interested in some further solid studies into the bible and its teachings then check out the other members of the amazon Ministries podcasting network you can contact me at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to expand a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you on accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. Hey guys, are you interested in podcasting but don't know where to go? Well, check out Zencaster.com and go ahead and make an account there and use special promo code Let Nothing Move You, all caps. That way you can get 30% off of your next deal to go ahead and set things up so you can figure out how to edit stuff using Zencaster.com to host your stuff to get things done there. So check out Zencaster.com, use special promo code Let Nothing Move You. All right, see ya.